0: Today's Bible reading will be taken from the book, the Gospel according to John, chapter twenty-one, from the verse verses fifteen to twenty-five. After I finish, please, you, me- as our custom is, you're meant to. Um, I would say this is the word of the Lord, and please, you, you're meant to respond with thanks be to God. Um, I read. Please listen attentively as I read the word of God. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than this? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Verse 23. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Verse 25, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world will not have room for the books that will be written. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you. Thanks, brother. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you all here. Um, It's the final. It's the final message in this series. And um, it's been a, it's been a wonderful thing going through all of this. For those who are new here, we have been going through the book of John, um, and we are trying to see the person of Jesus Christ through the book of John. Now, why we decided to do this is there's an assumption. Most times, you get very familiar with the things you've heard over and over again, and so sometimes we get very familiar with our spouses. Sometimes we get very familiar with our children, and so we don't want to maybe have those conversations that would seem as though we're trying to discover these people for the first time. And later, you find out that you've been neglecting the person. And that special time that you dedicate towards knowing the person even more, you find always to be rewarding. Now, how much more the person of Jesus Christ, whom many of us will call Savior and Lord. And so we wanted to take one of the accounts of Jesus Christ's life, the one from the youngest of his disciples and the one that was written. Uh, last uh, of the four accounts that were there. And we've been going through the book of John because John specifically states in the 20th chapter that um, he wrote this book down so that we would know the person of Jesus Christ as son of God and as Messiah. And that if we know him that way, that and believe in him, we would have eternal life. So we called it Believe and Live series. And this is our 18th um, uh, message on it. And it makes me think, you know, um, i don 't know how many of us have been faced with the situation where you wanted to quit at something. You started something you know and it became very difficult and then you just wanted to quit sometimes at least I remember and i 'm sure most of us growing up would think about food right so I don't know how many of us had timetables. Our parents had timetables, meal t- uh, timetables. You know, nowadays, the children are so spoiled. We just give them what they want. We ask them, what do you want to eat? And they say, I don't want this one. I don't want that one. But back in the day, you follow the timetable. What we'll beside you if you didn't if you even try to suggest, that, I don't think I want what is here. But you love the times that it was fried rice. You love the times it was jollof rice. That's Sunday, Sunday afternoon, isn't it? Jollof rice Sunday afternoon. Saturday morning, <laughs> But if you are very lucky, it was and moi moi right? If you are not lucky, it was and Beans. Right? So you followed it. But sometimes you couldn't finish the food. You couldn't finish it. And I don't know what tactics your parents used, you know. It may be the guilt tactic. You know, there are children in Somalia, they are dying. If you don't eat this food, I will beat the hell out of you. And that one worked. My dad used to um, use um, a method which I've actually practiced now with my children. It's a mixture of lies and encouragement and everything, but it works. So it's more like this. Tofumi, you can't finish your food. Why can't you finish your food? That is too much. I don't like it. Ah. So I then go in and now say, all right, let me divide it into two. You divide it into two. And you say, Tofumi, you're just a fantastic band, Just finish that half. If you finish that half, now, you don't come out and say, if you finish that half, that will be all. No, you save the life for later. Because if you use it in the initial stage, it doesn't, you know, you can't work out. So he finishes that half and he wants to go. And he'll say, ah, I didn't say that you go. But look, I finished that half, so I now divide the other one into two. And at that point, you can lie. Because now it's a quarter. If it goes there, so you lie about that one. Then the last one is now, now I'm like, ah, it's just four spoons. Okay, two me is like this. Just take two. If you take two, that would just be it. It would just be it. So there are two or four spoons remaining. And then he takes the two. But because he's three or four years old, you now say, OK, so it's remaining one more. He said, no, I took two. No, he said, I said you took one. <laughs> I now say, should you take two? And the guy he looks at you like, <laughs> and so he takes that one. And of course, there's only one more left. Yeah. And I like, just imagine, you have finished it. You have finished it. Just take this one. And then the guy. He probably thinks, should I or should I not? But then he thinks, this thing is about to finish. And then eventually, he takes it. Now, I know, look, when you've done that, don't worry. On Sunday, there's confession of sin time for all the lies you've taken. But like Tofumi and many of us in situations where we wanted to quit, there is something that motivates us to finish the task. You may have been dealt so many obstacles. Maybe you're dealing with a contract, and you're faced with bad workers, increased costs, or a roadblock, and you want to press on, but you feel like you cannot finish. And then you are motivated by something. Maybe looking at the end of what will happen. Maybe you are motivated by someone that you love. You see, at the end of the day, it all comes down to making a decision day by day, not to give up. And the ability to press to the end, despite all the obstacles that are faced with us, is what we call perseverance. Perseverance. Continuing to the end, despite all the things and the challenges that you have, is called perseverance. If you notice in our reading, in verse um, verse 22 or 23, when Peter um, is, is having a conflict as to what about John? What's happening to John? And Jesus said, look, wait. Even if I want him to go through all of even if I want him to be like this, until I return. What's it to you? Until I return. In many ways, the Christian journey is really, when you think about the end, the end can be summarized in this, until Jesus returns. In this book, we've looked at Jesus, and we've seen him. It said in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So we've seen Jesus in the beginning, beginning of all things. But then the word that was God then became flesh. That we call the incarnation. And we followed Jesus from the incarnation, all the things that he did, up until his death and his resurrection. In fact, Francis preached last week after he resurrected, he now gave his disciples a commission, something we called the Great Commission we saw in John 20, last um, week. Now, John could have ended it just as Luke and Matthew did in their books, and they ended it with the commission. Christ is risen, and now he sends forth his church to go into the world carrying the message that he is risen. But John decides to actually end it differently than all the other disciples. He decides to end it with this conversation that teaches us about perseverance till he returns, until the end. How is it in our Christian journey many times that we want to give up, how is it that we continue to press on? I'm sure many times some of us have wanted to give up. Well, in this final story, I think there is a lot that the Lord will want to tell us about how to persevere. And so today, on this message, till he returns, we'll look at perseverance. Perseverance, what what it is, how it's done, and why it's done. What it is, how it's done, and why it's done. All right, so let's start with the first point, what it is. Now, the context here, even though we read from, Um, verse 15 to 25. The context is actually from verses 1 to 14. What is happening? Now the other time Jesus has appeared to the disciples in chapter 20 but now he's appearing to them again. Peter has gone to fish. He's gone to fish. Now, not only has he gone to fish, as Peter said in verse 3 I'm going to fish, the other disciples followed him. Now let's not over exaggerate what is happening there, and quite often we do. We say, ah, Peter, they've already forgotten about Jesus very quickly. They've abandoned the mission. The mission that was given to them in chapter 20, all of a sudden now Peter has left that, and he's gone to fish. Or maybe he's very, very scared, as we saw in verse 21 of chapter 20. No, that's not what's happening. They're not yet in, this, they're not in despair. They've not abandoned the mission. But we can also say that they are not exactly brimming with confidence and eagerness for that mission. I don't know how many of us have read the book of Acts, and we saw Peter in the boldness that he preached to people that he was once scared of. Or the time when he was brought before the ruling council, and they told him, do not preach against, uh, again about this man. And Peter said, well, you guys can judge what you think I should do, whether I should obey you or to obey God. But I just know exactly what I am going to do. No. The disciples, when they were filled or baptized and filled with the Spirit in the book of Acts, were a different ballgame to hear. And in many ways, this kind of drop of enthusiasm is what has characterized many of us, probably now. Notice how we sometimes move from those very heady days of conversion, especially many of us who probably were converted in secondary school, or in the university. I love having conversations with people like, ah, those days. It's like when we want to guilt our children into doing something, right? At your age, I was on fire for the Lord. What happened to the fire now, auntie? We start off, we say, ah, I have left my first love. On campus, we were prayer secretary. And occasionally, we used to. Feel like we're also Bible secretaries, for which the Bible secretary did not like that. Why are you coming into my own? uh... But there was a fire. And what has happened since then? And sometimes we reflect on it and we say, you know what? Life. Life happened. Um, I got married, I had kids, it was work. Now I don't quite know why Peter them did this. It could be because they were in Galilee. Jesus had told them that he was going to appear to them in Galilee. It could just be that they were hungry, and they were broke. You know, Judas had died now at this point, and Judas was the one with the treasury loot, right? He had dispersed. How are they going to feed? They were waiting. They didn't know when Jesus was going to come. Life had happened. And it could be also as well that for us, you say, look, Femi, it's not that I don't know how those things were, but life is throwing things at me. Whether it is the busyness of life or the brutality of life, whatever it is, I know that this thing that Jesus has done for me, my life, is not living, at least in commensurate enthusiasm, with what I know he's done. And the appropriate question to us, as Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Now, you see, Peter's problems were deeper than what we just saw. It's not just the fact that maybe he's now not brimming with enthusiasm. Actually, it goes a little bit backwards. If you remember, well, some of us remember this um, 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 just before the uh, Jesus went to um, to the cross. Peter had said he wasn't going to deny Jesus Christ if things got very, very heavy. But Peter denied Jesus how many times? Three times. John 18, verse 17. Yet you aren't one. You aren't one of this man's disciples, too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, "I am not." Verse 25. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there, warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of these disciples, too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am Verse 26. One of the high priest servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. In fact, in another account, he said, he poured curses upon himself. It wouldn't be better for me if I knew that man. Ooh. Matthew 10, 33 says, But whoever disown, disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Peter did not just disown him once. He disowned him twice, and he disowned him three times. At the time of the Lord's, quote-unquote, greatest need. So is this not at least if we apply Matthew 10, is this not a final falling away, the apostasy of Peter? In that case, some of us here have more than denied Jesus in the way Peter did. Now, of course, it's not that Jesus was about going to the, uh, to the cross and were faced in the same way, but we have committed or uh, we have broken many vows that we've made to the Lord. In fact, we can't even count again. Am I lying? Or sometimes we have committed what you call egregious or gruesome sins more than once after promising to. It will never, if you you forgive me, Lord, for this, we cried our hearts out and we did it again. What is our fate? Final apostasy? If Peter has denied the Lord, which he said he would not, and he denied him three times, the question we should be asking is, why is Jesus having a conversation with Peter? After all, he has left the faith. And so many times we ask the question, how is it that someone is going to lose their faith? How do you lose your faith? Or can a Christian lose his salvation? Because... If I don't think I'm a candidate for that, at least I know a couple of people who should be candidates. And if you don't even know those people, you have a prime candidate here with Peter. How does he stay till the end? Should he even be staying in the end? Why is Jesus talking with him? Well, if Jesus is talking to him, he shouldn't be asking him, do you love me? He should just be saying, depart from me. You walk out of iniquity. I know you not. And this is where we have to make a very, a big pause and a contrast. Though he's not here, his silence or his absence is actually quite telling. The person that we should be contrasting with Peter is Judas Iscariot, who is not here. Now, for some of us that have not been, um, maybe not familiar to this, Jesus had 12 disciples that he called, and one of them was called Judas Iscariot. Now, it's so funny. Judas has a name that John, the writer of this uh, book, John always called Judas in this particular book. So you have John 6, 71. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the 12, was later to betray him. Chapter 12, verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. It's like me saying, ah, you know that uh, Teddo, the one that likes eating fried meat? Yes, that one. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm using the bully of the pulpit. Eh? <laughs> over and over and over and again, he kept, now, John is writing in the aftermath, probably like 60 years after these events have happened. And right from the get-go, he's introducing Judas. And he calls him the one who was to betray Jesus. Why does he call him that one? The person who was to betray Jesus? Well, very simply, he was the one who betrayed Jesus. John 13, verse 2, the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, okay, Judas betrayed Jesus. But he betrayed him once. Peter denied Jesus. He denied him three times. So why do we have a conversation between Jesus and Peter, and not the conversation between Jesus and Judas? Hmm. You see, we do have a place where John writes about Judas for the final time. It's in John chapter 18. In John chapter 18, Judas has finally done the thing. They've had this opera um, discourse from 13 to 16. And in 17, Jesus had made this high priestly prayer. And then Judas comes one more time at the beginning of John 18. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. John 18, verse, two. verse 3. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. That's the last we heard about Judas. John is giving us a clue. The reason why Judas, the reason why the fate of Judas and the fate of Peter are different is quite simply this. Judas, Peter is here and Judas is not. Because perseverance is about whether we get to the end. Let me let me explain this with a story. I don't know one, whether we've heard this story. Some of us would have. It's one of the greatest Olympic stories ever told. You know, the Olympics, anytime they come, they start playing some of these stories. But this one truly is one of the best. It's about a guy called John Stephen Aquari. He was a world-class distance runner in the 1960s and 70s. Aquari was competing in the Olympic marathon in Mexico City. Uh, in Mexico City, this was 1968. Now, approximately in, uh, 19 kilometers into the 42-kilometer race, there was jostling between some runners, and he fell badly. He wounded his knee, and his shoulder also hit hard against the pavement. In fact, his leg was bleeding, and his knee was apparently dislocated. It is reported that medical staff urged him to withdraw. So imagine that all your training for the past four years, the sacrifices you've made, the times you couldn't spend with your kids, the times you couldn't have the ice cream, you couldn't have the carrot cake, the times you had to go to bed early, the waking up, all of these four years, and you come to this moment, and maybe your dreams of having a medal immediately dashed. And it's so bad that the medical team then say, you have to withdraw. However, Acquiree continued running. Actually, it was a mix of walking and a slow limping runner points. He finished last among the 57 competitors who completed the race. The winner of the marathon had finished in two hours, 20 minutes, and 26 seconds. Aquari finished well over an hour later in three hours, 25 minutes, and 27 seconds. By then, The sun had set, and there were only a few thousand people left in the stadium. But of course, as he finally crossed the finish line, a cheer came from the small crowd. A television crew was diverted from a medal ceremony and caught this courageous man's agonizing finish. As a matter of fact, of the 75 who started the 1968 Olympic marathon, 18 others did pull out. And really, no one even remembers the name of the gold medal winner that year. And this is the place we mustn't miss out. When interviewed later and asked why he ignored the advice to pull out and continued running, Aquarius said, My country did not send me 10,000 miles just to start the race, they sent me to finish the race. What's the difference between Peter and Judas? The difference is that Peter was here, and Judas is not. A writer of Hebrews even puts it quite succinctly when it comes to a Christian. We have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original conviction firmly when to the end. You see, Peter, yes, he denied Jesus three times. But this is why Jesus asks him also the same question three times. Do you love me? What is it? What does perseverance mean in the Christian race? It means finishing, holding firmly to Christ until the end. It is not necessarily about how you get there. It is the biggest question is if and when you get there. Well, let me take you to the second point then. If that is what it is, then how is it done? How can we get, how can we persevere to the end? Perhaps, like John Stephen Aquari, we can summon inner strength to stay with Christ until the end. Now, there is something, um, um, Corey was talking about um, spiritual disciplines and how it's difficult for him doing personal spiritual disciplines in, during the week, but that if he then does the, spiritual discipline of gathering with the Lord's people, that encourages him to do the um, individual one. That is very true. There is much for Christians to do in relation to the fight against sin. We are called to use our time diligently and wisely through individual collective prayer, gathering with the Lord's people, Bible study, accountable relationships. In fact, 1 Timothy 6 puts it this way. But you, man of God or Christian, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. How do we do it? We fight. We fight to stay to the end. We don't get into this garbage of, I just leave and let Jesus And yet, when you fight, you can understand the fight and be motivated very wrongly. That was Peter's problem. What do I mean by that? Peter, like many of us, can overestimate our love for Jesus. Peter did that initially. Remember when um, in the uh, the upper room, Jesus wants to wash the feet, and Peter said, you wash my feet? You will never wash my feet. I can't allow you to wash my feet. Because he was very zealous for his Lord. How will my Lord wash my feet? Later, in chapter 13 of verse 37, Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Many times, we do overestimate our love for God. In fact, when people ask us, are you a Christian, we see that question to be very offensive. If I'm not a Christian, who would be a Christian? It gets us thinking, because of how we think we behave, because of how charitable we are, because of how clean our mouths are, and we we don't use foul words, because we don't cheat at work, we think, of course I'm a Christian. Jesus, you know, I love you. Now, can I suggest to you that this is a very dangerous place to be in? Because if you did not become a Christian on your own, why do you al- already think that ulti- ultimately you are responsible for remaining one? Another way we can think about this is, and this is the opposite side. You know, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. You know, if only you know what I have done. You say, Ah, no, all of us have committed sin. Ah, no, shagun. Tomo, you can't understand. I have committed the sin I have committed, eh, it is so bad, God cannot forgive me for this one. I say, look, God can forgive any sin. He said, Well, actually, this sin that I've committed, okay, fine. God can, can forgive me for it. But I've not committed it once. I've committed it twice. I can't be a Christian. Now, I've uttered those foolish words myself. You see, those two scenarios I pointed out both depict a kind of sheer arrogance. The first one overestimates ourselves, the second one underestimates God. Notice what happens. Even though Peter overestimated himself, and now Peter is a bit despondent, he's been obviously humbled by the fact that he said he will not deny the Lord, and he denied the Lord three times. He's obviously now humbled and so aware of his failures. But guess what doesn't happen? Peter is not the one that's going to Jesus. Jesus is the one that comes to meet him. It is his graciousness that not only converts us, but also sustains us. We hear about God as creator. It says, we know that by faith that the the world that we see now was brought together or created by the word of God. But we also know this, that the world is also being sustained by God. And in the same way, that same word that created the world, we are told in 2 Corinthians 4, is the one that has shown in our hearts. When it's shown in your hearts, is it now for you to keep it bright alone, God opened the door but it's our own job to keep the door open, the hand of God and the leg of man, wonderful equation, it is God that sustains us and we see that over and over in the book of John, if we are able to stay in the Lord, it is him that sustains us, now Christ comes to Peter in the same way he comes to all of us who believe and he restores Peter The problem with Judas is that he proved he really did not believe because if he did, he would have gone back to Christ, which would have brought Christ to him, to sustain him. It is God that ultimately sustains a believer in the faith. John chapter 6, verse 37 to 40. All those the Father gives me will come to me. Fine. And whoever comes to me, I will not drive away. Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given to me. Whose job is it to keep us? Whose job is it to stay in the faith, to keep us in the faith? Can I suggest it's not ultimately you. He said, I will not lose all of any of them, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have Eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. Or John 3:16, that we all know. For God loved the world, so loved the world that he gave his only one and only son, that whoever believes in him probably will not perish. If they keep it hard together, they will sustain themselves, will not perish. That's what you call a perfect tense. If you believe in him, you will not perish. I'll give you one more, John 10. My sheep, verse 27, listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hands. The devil can't snatch him out of your hands. Principalities can't snatch him out of your hands. Difficult situations can't snatch him out of your hands. Even you cannot snatch him out of your hands. That's what he says. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father, who's given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hands. Now, listen to me. A professing Christian may lose his salvation, but a genuine Christian cannot. I'll say that again. A professing Christian may lose his salvation, but a genuine Christian cannot because it was never his to keep anyway. see, a professing Christian, his salvation was given to him by himself. And of course, therefore, he can lose it. But one who truly professed his saving faith in Christ will not lose it. Why? Because it is Christ that gave it to him, and he is the one that sustains it. So, but what about if the person is not behaving like Christian? Well, that's the point. If you remember in John chapter fifteen, it talks about the vine and the branches, and it says that God, the Father, is the gardener. Verse two: He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be more fruitful. Those who are saved in Christ he proves by fruit bearing, and he also proves the Father by sustaining. Part of how he sustains us is through, is through the word of God. That is why he kept telling Peter, for the sheep that will come, my sheep, as he said in chapter 10, my sheep, feed them, take care of them. Now, God uses many means. Don't mistake this. There is the fact that he sustains us, but there is the means through which he sustains us. Through his word, through his people, everything. He that began the good work in you, is faithful to complete it, even though we stumble here and there. And I have to end with the final point now. Third point is, why then is it done? Why then does God keep us this way? Well, it's certainly not because he compares us with others. That's the kind of foolish thing Peter did that sometimes we do. Look at in verse 20 and uh, verse 20 to 22. Peter turned and saw the, that disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. Verse 21. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, him call. What about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You see, Peter was distracted because Jesus had just told him in verses 18 to 19 that he was going to die, that his life was going to be one of martyrdom. Now, a life of martyrdom is already bad enough, right? But Peter did the thing that most of us are very used to. The issue is not really my life itself. The issue is my life in comparison with the other person. I'm not just happy that God has given me a brand new car. I'm happy that my car is better than my neighbor's car. On this street, I may not be the best person in the whole area, but on this street, everybody knows that this car is the best car on this street. Huh? Can't you can't shout. Okay, maybe my children are not able to go to that school, but on this street, My children are the best in this street. Or you can, like me, say, well, I may not be the tallest person in the world, but in this church, nobody is taller than I am. And that is a fact. I hope you know. (laughs) If you are thinking of joining this church and you are taller than me, please, you can find another church down the road. We're never, ever satisfied in what it is that we have. It must always be that we want to compare it with the other person. Maybe I don't have a big generator. Maybe my generator is small, but my neighbor doesn't have one. I have a, I better pass my neighbor. What about him? What about him? I am going to have a life of martyrdom. Well, me too, I mean, he too is a disciple. You called me, you called him. I hope he too is going to have to die in that kind of way. You see, sometimes we tend to think of this Christian journey. It is true it's a race, but here's how we think about it. We think about it as a race like the track. Eight tracks. Eight people lined up. I'm in my own track. And to get to the finish line, the issue here is not just whether you get to the finish line. The issue is, do you get to the finish line before that other guy? We tend to compare The psalmist in Psalm 73 actually related very well. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, he starts to chronicle his foolishness, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. Why am I suffering if I am a Christian? I'm not corrupt. It must be vain to be a good Christian. Or see, she does not go to church as often as I do, and she is already married. The psalmist in verse 13 says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. I've done it in vain because look at what's happening to me. At this age, all my mates have advanced. And we all, they don't go to church more than I do. Psalmist goes on and says, all day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. But thank God for him in verse 15. He said, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. You see, when we think about the race in that way, we think about a race in which we are trying to outperform one another. A race of performance. Now, if it is a race of performance, then it is not of grace. Our journey is a race, yes, but it is a race of grace. Not against each other, but alongside one another. You see, what Peter failed to realize was that were John not to live this long, he would not have been able to write this particular book. Look at verse 24. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. If John were not kept alive, we will not have even known certain insights about Peter. In other words, your own race is going to be different from Tybalt's race because God has called Taiwo for something, and God has called you for something. But my own difficulty is much more because you've been called for something else. The important thing is not whether you finish the race before this person. Someone else has already finished the race for us. We all finish the race. You see, the race of grace, of course, means that we should follow Jesus as he called Peter to follow him. In verse 19, Jesus said, this was to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Verse 22, Jesus answered, if I, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. What does he mean? Well, we've seen that. We know the path that Jesus took. The path that Jesus took as he came from the incarnation into this world eventually took him to death on the cross, and through the resurrection. And when Jesus is telling Peter, this is the way you go, he's saying, and he's saying to many of us, the Christian life, yes, we are united with Christ in his resurrection. And many of us here know, despite the difficulties that we are going through, many of us have seen many victories in our lives. And in that regard, we are united to him in his resurrection. But if we are true followers, as we continue in this race to the end until he returns, we are also going to be united with him in his sufferings. In Acts chapter 5, after they had been flogged, they said they counted it joy to have been persecuted, to to suffer for the name of Christ. In other words, how do we get there? Don't always look at the things and the obstacles in your life as whether or not I am truly a victorious Christian. Because Christ went to the cross and victoriously defeated the devil in the cross. And many times the victory that we have as Christians is in the suffering. The suffering with the spouse. The suffering with the child. The suffering in our businesses. We are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But also don't make this mistake. You don't finish the race because you are just able to withhold the suffering. I'm following in the example of Christ. No. We finish the race not because Jesus is our example and we follow like Jesus. No, we finish the race because Jesus is our forerunner. Because if Jesus did not go to the cross on our behalf, all your running will be in vain. God preserves us up unto the end, but the very reason he preserves us is because Christ persevered for us to the cross. I don't know how many of you know the concept of double jeopardy for the legal ones among us. Double jeopardy is basically that you, have, you committed an offense and you are being punished for the offense twice. That is wrong. Can I say that if you have truly believed in Christ and Christ has suffered in your place, God is not going to do a double jeopardy upon you. God pays for our sins either in hell or on the cross. If your sins are paid on the cross of Christ, then you will not suffer in hell. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So... How do I know that I will make it to the end? Well, I make it to the end because Christ died for me and now he's risen. He said he makes intercession for us at the right hand of God, in heaven. But the spirit that he gave to us is also making intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. You are not in this race alone. At the moment, or at lowest moments when we think this is too much for us, remember that we only have one plea, but that Christ died for me. When he said that he would not leave us nor forsake us, it's because he's saying, I have gone through this race. Yes, it may be difficult, but I am going to be with you till the end. Till I return. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the many things that we've seen about him. He is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. He is the son of God. He is the anointed one. He is the glorious Messiah. He is our redeemer. We thank you, Lord, that he is the one to whom if we come, he will never cast us away. And we thank you because he is the one that will take us to the very end. Father, help us in whatever circumstances we face not to give up. Help us to know that the reason why we came into this race was not just for us to start, but for us to finish. And that in those times when we feel that we cannot make it, let us remember that we are not called to make it on our own. In those times when we have fallen, when we have denied you, help us to look back to the cross, because there you did not deny us. Help us to know that we always have forgiveness with you if we return to you. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who feels that they are very far away from you, who feels that they do not deserve to be with you, help them to remember that no one deserves to be with you, but you love us in this way anyway. And bring us, O God, through all this, knowing that at the end of it all, we will be with you in glory. For you said, I will not lose any one of them, but I will raise them up on the last day. Help us, O God, to take that promise as assuredly as that you have risen from the grave. Knowing that truly, it is well with the righteous. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: you for listening to the gospel in lagos we pray you've been blessed by this message to learn more about city church visit www.citychurchlagos.com city church love jesus love people love lagos